I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Today, I'm bringing back a previous episode of Murderish that is truly bizarre. On the morning of May 26, 1990, Marlene Warren was finishing breakfast with her son and his friends when she heard a knock on the front door. She was greeted by someone wearing a clown costume with white face paint, clutching a flower arrangement and foil balloons. Moments later, the clown pulled out a gun, aimed it at her face, and pulled the trigger. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of May 26, 1990, Marlene Warren was finishing breakfast with her son and his friends when she heard a knock on their front door. The 40-year-old mother of two wasn't expecting anyone, but answered the door anyway. She was greeted by someone wearing a clown costume and white face paint, clutching a flower arrangement and foil balloons. Marlene was delighted. How pretty, she responded at the cheerful sight. Then, suddenly, everything changed. As moments later, the clown pulled out a gun, aimed it at her face, and pulled the trigger. The bizarre attack left the community puzzled and horrified at a time when authorities were ill-equipped to find answers. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through this strange case involving Marlene Warren. (laughs) 
This case takes us to Wellington, Florida, an affluent village in Palm Beach County located southwest of West Palm Beach. Today, Wellington is a mix of working-class citizens and the rich elite, with real estate consistently ranking among the most expensive in the state. It's also been a popular spot for part-time residency by celebrities, such as Bill Gates, Bruce Springsteen, and Tommy Lee Jones. Wellington is well known for its role in equestrian events. It's home to the Winter Equestrian Festival, the biggest and longest-running equestrian festival in the world. The festival runs annually for 12 weeks, from January to April, and generally contributes around $300 million to the state's economy. But the way the village is now is a far cry from its early days. With the help of state legislation in the early 1950s, Charles Oliver Wellington transformed underdeveloped tracts of land into fertile farmland. Due to its proximity to the Florida Everglades, severe flooding was a problem. By serving as chairman of the Acme Drainage District and overseeing the development of drainage and flood control in the area, Wellington was laying the groundwork for a thriving community. For the last two decades, Wellington has seen its population double. With the village's modern school system and immaculate playgrounds, it drew in a lot of young suburbanites striving to raise families in a safe, serene setting. In the 1990s, while the crack cocaine epidemic plagued bigger cities, Wellington seemed to be the solution. Kathy Foster, one of the village's founders and its first mayor, captured it well to the Palm Beach Post by saying, At the time, we didn't lock our doors. We lived in a bubble of insulation out here. But coastal living comes at a price. While there are rental properties, monthly rates are twice as high as the rest of the state. Homes also come at a premium. One exclusive neighborhood known as Aero Club would run you anywhere from $1 to $5 million to call it home. Referring to the houses in the area as palatial would be an understatement. Each estate features its own backyard grass airstrip for the residents' private jets and helicopters. It was in this posh neighborhood where Marlene Warren met her tragic and sudden end. It seemed like the least likely setting for a cold-blooded murder. Marlene May McKinnon was born in Michigan on April 15, 1950. She was the middle daughter with two sisters named Debbie and Leanne. By all reports, the McKinnons moved around frequently. They spent some time around California before moving back to the greater Detroit metro. Marlene's grandfather owned a farm just north of the city, and the girls spent a large portion of their childhoods there. At some point in her adolescence, Marlene's parents divorced. Her mother, Shirley, eventually remarried, taking her new husband, Bill Twing's name. Marlene's youth didn't last quite as long as most. At just 15 years old, she married John Ahrens and became pregnant with their first child, John Jr. A short time later, she had their second son, Joseph. It was a joyful time that sadly wasn't meant to last. When both sons were toddlers, John was on a business trip in Texas when he tragically died in a car accident. He was only 22 years old at the time. Marlene was left alone to care for her young children 
when she was barely an adult herself. Just a few years later, Marlene's life seemed to turn around. At age 19, she met 22-year-old Michael Warren. They quickly fell in love and married in 1972. The first several months of marriage were spent in Mount Clemens, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit that was Michael's hometown. Marlene and Michael soon decided to relocate their family to Florida. Palm Beach County had less than half the amount of crime than the Detroit suburbs and a better education system for Marlene's boys. After settling into their new location, the Warrens began flipping houses. They would buy a house, live there for long enough to make a profit when selling it, and then they'd move on to the next. With growing capital, they purchased land and built several rental properties. They expanded this venture to 17 buildings scattered across Palm Beach County. Marlene would manage and maintain the properties while juggling her other job as a cargo ship inspector. Before long, Michael had new ideas to expand their wealth. In the 1970s, he opened Bargain Motors, a used car dealership, and Bargain Auto Rentals, a car rental agency. Both were located in West Palm Beach. Though the businesses were mostly successful, Michael was conducting some shady business. He eventually faced charges of odometer tampering, a third-degree felony. He was caught after two used car buyers reported him for rolling back the mileage count and charging them more than the car's true value. After pleading guilty, Michael was sentenced to 18 months probation. Despite this legal hurdle, all of the Warrens' business ventures brought them great fortune. Soon, they were able to build their dream home in Wellington's exclusive community, Arrow Club. In the late 1980s, they purchased an acre of land and built a 6,500-square-foot home. It was one of the first ever constructed at Arrow Club. Compared to mansions there today, the home was modest. But back then, with its long circular driveway and personal airstrip, it was quite a status symbol. In 1990, Michael decided to expand Bargain Motors by moving to a bigger lot. Among his employees were repo men, people who went after customers who didn't pay and repossessed their cars. One of these repo men was Richard Keene, otherwise known as Spud. On one notable occasion while passing through Michael's lot, Richard brought along his wife, Sheila. Sheila Keene was stunningly beautiful, with wide brown eyes that reflected a natural curiosity and long dark hair. She wasn't like other women Michael had met. She was outspoken, defiant, and fearless. Born Sheila Marie Sheltra in 1964, her large family moved around Florida several times. After relocating from Vermont, the family took up residence in LaBelle, Florida, where her father Robert would establish his own construction company. They remained in LaBelle for most of Sheila's childhood. Sheila was very close with her mother during this time, and she frequently helped with household chores. In the early 1980s, the family moved east to Martin County. This was during Sheila's sophomore and junior years of high school. School records indicate that Sheila stopped attending during her senior year, instead choosing to enroll in adult education classes in Indiantown. This marked a turning point in Sheila's life. She had a cousin who lived in Indiantown who happened to be dating a man named Richard Keene. Right away, 
Sheila admired the older and wiser man, who was nearly 20 years her senior. As a friend of Sheila's cousin told the Palm Beach Post, Sheila kind of stole Richard away from her cousin. Richard Keene had a sordid past, but this didn't seem to bother a love-struck Sheila. Richard C. Keene was a former director of the United Clan of America, a southern chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. At the age of 22, Richard had been paramount in organizing the 1972 presidential campaign of George Wallace in Florida. Wallace was a strong supporter of Jim Crow policies and believed desegregation was a danger to society, though he would later retract those views. Richard made headlines again in September of 1980 when he and an accomplice were involved in a shootout after being caught trafficking marijuana on a rural Georgia airstrip. Richard was subsequently sentenced to 10 years in prison. He served two years in four different prisons, mostly because of the security risk attached to a man associated with the KKK. Sheila remained loyal to Richard during his incarceration. She lived close to where Richard was incarcerated and made modest amounts of money by selling odds and ends at flea markets around the state. When he was paroled in 1983, Richard and Sheila returned to Palm Beach County. A year later, Sheila had a minor brush with the law. In 1984, she was arrested for shoplifting at a local mall. Since it was a first-time offense and she had stolen under $100 in merchandise, the charges were dismissed. It was clear to Sheila's parents that Richard was a terrible influence, but their daughter was extremely rebellious and stubborn. There wasn't much they could do to keep the couple apart. In May of 1987, Sheila and Richard got married before a notary public in Palm Bay while Sheila was six months pregnant. None of their family or friends witnessed the ceremony. Their son Charles was born in August of that year. The expanding Keene family took up residence in a tiny apartment that sat in front of a trailer park by Richard's family. The couple made a modest income together by managing the trailer park along with a nearby used car lot. Shortly after, they moved to a bigger house in Loxahatchee where they began repossessing cars for a living. Sheila and Richard drove separate flatbed trucks to retrieve cars, often from crime-ridden neighborhoods. It was around this time that Sheila Keene and Michael Warren first crossed paths. It wasn't long after meeting that the 26-year-old began spending a great deal of time on Michael's lot. She was soon hired as an employee at Bargain Motors, and Michael's other employees took note of the closeness developing between them. Less than three years in, Sheila and Richard's marriage had begun to deteriorate. In January of 1990, Sheila filed a petition for injunction against domestic violence committed by Richard. According to the local network NBC5 WPTV, a temporary injunction was granted after it was determined that Richard grabbed his wife by the neck and threatened to kill her if she took their son. He had pushed Sheila out of the car and left her stranded in Indian Town. This was the final straw for Sheila. By early May, Sheila had moved into a West Palm Beach apartment. Rumors circulated around the car lot that Michael was paying her rent. It wasn't so far-fetched, as they weren't exactly inconspicuous about their blossoming affair. 
The couple were often seen dining together at Casey's Ocean Cafe on Singer Island or traveling to Miami's Calder Race Course. According to the Palm Beach Post, police reports from Sheila's neighbors conveyed a widely held assumption that Sheila and Michael were married because the pair were seen together that often. Sheila could not get enough of Michael and the feeling was mutual at first. Michael eventually became annoyed by how much Sheila had inserted herself into his life. He started blowing off their lunch plans, reportedly telling employees he didn't appreciate Sheila acting like his wife. Michael began pulling away from her, and Sheila did not take it well. On the morning of May 26, 1990, Marlene's 21-year-old son, Joe, from her first marriage, was eating breakfast with his friends. Jean Pratt, Wendell Pratt, and Wendell's girlfriend, Mindy Perez, were visiting Joe after a car accident had put him in a leg cast. At around 10.45 that morning, Marlene heard that fateful knock at the door. Her confusion overseeing an orange-wigged, red-nosed clown on her porch morphed into delight when she saw the flowers and balloons. One heart-shaped balloon read, You're the greatest, before her glee could transform into terror. The clown turned sinister and brandished a weapon. The clown aimed and fired directly at Marlene's head. By the time her son Joe hobbled over to the door, it was too late. The clown sauntered away, looking back at him before climbing into a Chrysler convertible that had been boldly parked in the driveway. As the clown drove away, Joe acted fast. While his friends were in the house and neighbors were calling 911, Joe grabbed his keys, got into his own car, and attempted to follow his mother's assailant. But time was not on his side that day. Whoever the clown was, they got away, never to be seen again. Palm Beach County investigators and emergency workers soon arrived at the residence. Marlene was found lying unconscious just past the front door. She was in critical condition as EMS rushed her to Palms West Hospital. After two days of fighting for her life, Marlene was taken off life support and passed away. A private service was held at Lake Worth Memory Gardens a few days later. It was an incomprehensible tragedy to all who knew Marlene. When the news broke, Marlene's family conveyed their sense of turmoil and despair. In an interview with 2020, her mother, Shirley, remembered Marlene as outgoing, friendly, and loving, someone who would do anything for anybody. It was difficult to comprehend why anyone would target her and want her dead. Shirley wondered aloud to the South Florida Sun Sentinel, why was she singled out? Everybody seemed to like her so much. Marlene's stepfather, Bill, had a different take on the murder. He was quick to blame Marlene's husband, Michael, for her death. He spoke of Michael to the Palm Beach Post, saying, They were having problems. If she would have left him, it would have cost him dearly insinuating that there was potentially a financially driven motive for Michael to kill his wife. But the culprit was still a point of speculation this early in the investigation. The bizarre and brutal crime set the community on edge, especially in the days following Marlene's death. 
While investigators hunted for potential suspects, parents were unsure if this had been a random killing. Neighborhood children and their caregivers developed a strong fear of clowns. Years later, high school students would drive past the house, gawking at the scene where the cold-blooded murder took place. The crime became as persuasive as any urban legend, except it had actually happened. The ripple effects of the clown killer were far-reaching. Violent crimes such as this did not happen in Wellington. Kathy Foster, a Brooklyn transplant who helped establish Wellington, spoke to the Palm Beach Post about how the shooting impacted its residents. The murder just consumed the community. It was very overwhelming to think someone could ring your doorbell and kill you at the front door of your own house. There was a sense that the world did reach us that day. We lived in isolation from reality. It was a case of an awakening that even in places like Wellington, bad things can happen. While the public speculated about the clown's identity, detectives did not have to wait long for a potential lead. Within two hours of the shooting, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous tip. As reported in the South Florida Sun Sentinel, the caller said, you might want to ask Michael Warren and Sheila Keen a few questions. Michael was definitely on their radar. At the time of the murder, he'd been on his way to the Calder racetrack to meet up with friends. Though his alibi was confirmed, it did not eliminate him as a potential suspect or accomplice. The more investigators dug into Michael's personal life, the more complicit he seemed. Sergeant Lou Sessa worked with detectives Steve Newell and Bill Williams to examine the details. They interviewed dozens of witnesses, many of whom were Michael's employees. There were consistent reports of Michael having an affair, which provided a potential motive. When interviewed, both Sheila and Michael denied having an affair. But Marlene's mother was able to offer additional insight. Marlene had expressed the desire to leave Michael because she suspected an affair. An Associated Press article reported that Marlene had told her mother, if anything happens to me, Mike did it. Detectives soon discovered that Michael had a lot more to gain with Marlene dead. There was a five-figure life insurance policy in place that would go to Michael if his wife died. If Marlene had left him, she stood to gain a considerable portion of Michael's assets. All of the couple's properties were in Marlene's name. This included the car dealership, the car rental agency, their extravagant Wellington home, and lucrative rental properties in the Westgate section of West Palm Beach. Essentially, Marlene could have ruined Michael financially. Another interesting fact was that Marlene had an appointment with a real estate agent scheduled to take place just a few weeks after her death. She reportedly hated the stress of evicting tenants who weren't able to pay their rent, and she was looking into selling the rental properties. With the knowledge of an affair, investigators shifted their focus to Sheila Keen. As Michael's mistress, any number of motives were possible. Jealousy, greed, possessiveness, all that and more were on the table as the driving force for revenge in a love triangle. While detectives searched for evidence linking Sheila to the crime, several witnesses came forward to implicate her. 
Hours after the anonymous tip came in, detectives received another call. The owner of a West Palm Beach shop spotlight costume said a clown costume had been sold to a woman with brown hair a few days earlier. When presented with a photo of Sheila, the two-store clerks tentatively identified her as the buyer. Scant physical evidence was pulled from the crime scene. The murder weapon and clown costume were never found. There were no fingerprints to analyze, and any blood present belonged to the victim. The only items found at the scene were the flower arrangement and two Mylar balloons, the heart-shaped one and another that had an image from Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. While these leads may not have seemed significant, it was something, and detectives needed to explore every piece of evidence to the fullest extent. Unfortunately, DNA was not a viable option in the investigation. First developed in 1985, the testing of biological material was still being explored for criminal forensic use when Marlene was murdered. According to Time magazine, the first U.S. case to ever use DNA evidence to convict someone had gone to trial three years earlier. The science of DNA was still not fully understood by the general public. Even in the high-profile trial of O.J. Simpson in 1995, members of the jury hesitated to put their faith in DNA evidence. Without DNA to back up their investigation, detectives had to work with the tried-and-true tools available to them. The balloons found at the scene had a specific design. Determining where they were purchased could bring them one step closer to establishing the perpetrator's identity. Luckily, there was only one store in the area that sold that particular arrangement of flowers and balloons. It was a Publix supermarket that happened to be located just a mile away from Sheila Keene's apartment. Two Publix clerks told detectives that a woman with long brown hair wearing white gloves had purchased the balloons and flower arrangement on May 26th at around 9.30 in the morning. This was a little more than an hour before the crime. They described the mystery woman as having male mannerisms and remembered the customer well enough to pick Sheila out of a photo lineup. This was a favorable lead, though an even better one was right around the corner. On May 30th, four days after Marlene's murder, Officers located an abandoned white Chrysler LeBaron in the parking lot of a local Winn-Dixie store. It had no license plate, but matched the description Marlene's son had given of the getaway car. A car with the same color, make, and model was reported stolen by Payless Auto Rental on April 14th. Investigators would soon link the car to two people in a very bizarre way. Claude Poitres, one of Michael's employees at Bargain Motors told officers about an unusual interaction. A month before the murder happened, a couple mistakenly called to return a Chrysler LeBaron they had rented from one of Michael's competitors, Payless Car Rental. Instead of correcting the couple, several witnesses overheard Michael tell them to leave the keys in the visor and he would take care of the rest. Later that afternoon, Claude had driven Michael and Sheila to the Payless rental lot, and the pair had driven away with a LeBaron. The whole thing triggered greater suspicion when Michael told Claude 
not to say anything to anyone about the car. Finding the potential getaway car was the strongest evidence yet. Detectives combed through every inch of the vehicle, hoping to uncover more physical evidence. Along with orange fibers that could have come from a clown wig, they located brown hairs under a floor mat in the car. These hair strands were the same shade as brown hair retrieved during a search of Sheila's apartment. At that point, investigators decided to bring Sheila in for further questioning. Sheila denied all of the allegations, saying she had never been in a Chrysler LeBaron. She had not shopped at a Publix, and she had no reason to purchase a clown costume. She also disputed how the hair in the car could implicate her. She repossessed cars on a daily basis, and just because her hair was found in a car did not mean she drove the getaway car in connection to the murder of her lover's wife. Despite Sheila's claims of innocence, there were facts detectives could not ignore. The orange hair-like fibers found in the LeBaron were also found tangled in the strings of the balloons which were handed to the victim. Lastly, there were similar statements made by eyewitnesses to the crime. According to court documents released by NBC5 WPTV, Joe and his friends had only gotten a fleeting glance at the killer clown. But their statements shared some common details. Out of the four witnesses, three of them, including Joe, described the shooter as a tall man between six feet and six foot two. The fourth witness was uncertain of the perp's gender. No one had been able to make out any facial features, though Joe did recall seeing brown eyes looking back at him before the clown fled. Another defining detail from eyewitnesses were the perp's shoes. Instead of clown shoes to go with the getup, witnesses noted that Marlene's attacker was wearing black lace-up shoes or boots. During a second search of Sheila's home, detectives located two pairs of black lace-up shoes. One of the pairs had orange-yellow acrylic fibers embedded in the sole. Though evidence kept mounting, so did pressure from the community and national news to solve the case. At the one-year anniversary mark, a press conference was held by Sergeant Lou Sessa and Detectives Steve Newell and Bill Williams. They informed the public that they were awaiting the results of FBI hair and fiber tests performed on samples collected from the suspected getaway car. Though the investigative team assured the public they were confident that Sheila and Michael were involved, they were hoping to find more physical evidence. As quoted in the Miami Herald, Sergeant Sessa told the media, We're in no hurry. We'd rather take our time and go with the best case than rush it. We've only got one shot. Unfortunately, state prosecutors determined the evidence gathered during what turned out to be a three-year investigation would be considered entirely circumstantial. Nothing they found was enough to file charges or help them in pursuit of a conviction. Prosecutors believe that the evidence collected would not hold up in court. Like so many cases before DNA technology was introduced, the evidence was boxed up and placed in storage. As the files sat untouched for nearly two decades, the case went cold. Two other detectives, Wayne Robinson in 2000 and Paige McCann in 2013, re-examined the case files, but both of them lacked the time, help, and resources needed to launch a new investigation using DNA evidence. 
Then, when it seemed the case might never be solved, a glimmer of hope came about. In 2014, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office received a $125,000 federal grant to reopen the investigation into Marlene Warren's murder. The sizable grant made it possible to assign a task force that included the state's attorney's office and the FBI. A grueling process lay ahead, witnesses needed to be re-interviewed, and DNA testing of the brown hair and orange fibers would stretch from late 2015 to early 2016. The next four years were spent reviewing evidence, substantiating eyewitness accounts, and hunting for new leads. It would all be worth it if detectives could finally bring Marlene's killer to justice. Lead investigator Detective Paige McCann spoke with the South Florida Sun Sentinel about the new investigation. She said, In cold cases, we have a big puzzle. A lot of it was already filled in by the thorough investigation done by the initial detectives, and we just needed a few little pieces of the puzzle, and we were able to do that with new technologies and DNA. The current sheriff of Palm Beach County, Rick Bradshaw, admitted to the news outlet the case just wasn't strong enough 30 years ago. This time was different. Prosecutors now believe they had built a strong case against the alleged killer. Through DNA testing, it was confirmed that the orange hairs found inside of the Chrysler LeBaron, attached to Sheila's black shoes, pulled from the balloon ribbons, and a wig from the costume shop were all identical. In August of 2017, all of the findings were brought before a Palm Beach County grand jury. After reviewing the evidence, they returned an indictment. Sheila Keen Warren, who had married Michael during a Las Vegas ceremony in 2002, was being charged with first-degree murder. On September 26, 2017, 27 years after Marlene's death, Sheila was arrested in Abingdon, Virginia. The Warrens had been on a road trip to Vermont to visit Sheila's mother and were on their way back when they were pulled over. Since their elopement in Vegas, the couple had relocated to the quaint historic town. Abingdon rests on the Tennessee border in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Its artsy vibes and scenic views make it a local tourist destination. Michael and Sheila had built a new life there. For the last 15 years, Sheila had gone by the alias Debbie Warren, perhaps to avoid being tracked down. The restaurant they owned, a drive through called the Purple Cow, had recently been sold so the couple could enjoy their retirement together. No one who was associated with them at this time had any knowledge of the couple's previous lives in Florida. When news broke that Sheila was being charged with a Florida murder from a lifetime ago, Neighbors were astounded. As quoted in the South Florida Sun Sentinel, their next-door neighbor, Brooke Blevins, reacted by saying, It doesn't seem like the people I know. I feel so warmly toward them. How could somebody capable of something like that be so good-hearted and loving? Captain Michael Wallace of the Palm Beach County's Cold Case Unit surmised how Sheila must have felt being arrested when so much time had passed since the crime. He was quoted in the Newport News' Daily Press as saying, Even for her, it was, look, it's over. She's been running for 27 years. She probably thought she had gotten away with it, 
but she didn't. Michael Warren was also shocked by his wife's arrest. In an exclusive interview with 2020 in October of 2017, he said Sheila is falsely accused. This is very serious and very unfair. But for Joe Ahrens, who had been home to hear the gunshot that fatally wounded his mother, it was a relief. He told ABC News affiliate WPBF that the arrest caused him to be happier than I've been in many years. The arrest was made possible thanks to modern DNA analysis. Testing was done on the skin portion of the hair root, which concluded that the hair was from Sheila's head. It was identical to the human hair collected from the LeBaron. These DNA results served to bolster evidence that had been designated as circumstantial decades ago. At long last, prosecutors were getting closer to providing answers to Marlene's loved ones. Sergeant Richard McAfee told NBC News at a press conference, taking another person's life is a horrific incident. It just took us 27 years to bring closure to the victim's family. Murder cases never go away. Sheila was held at Abingdon Southwest Virginia Regional Jail for several weeks before being extradited to Palm Beach County. Because the homicide was committed with a firearm, she was eligible for the death penalty in the state of Florida. She was held without bail in Palm Beach County Jail for three years as she awaited trial. In 2020, prosecutors announced they were no longer seeking capital punishment in the case. A trial was put on hold due to the global pandemic, and Sheila grew restless. In April of 2021, Sheila's defense team filed a motion seeking bail. According to the Washington County News, the filing argued, there is no reliable physical or testimonial evidence that she committed this crime. Yet Miss Keene Warren has been incarcerated without bond since October 4th of 2017. They also referenced the lack of COVID-19 safety protocols in jail and how quickly infection could spread there. If the judge granted bail, the defendant promised she would stay with her sons in Palm Beach until the trial. The defense insisted Sheila was not a danger to the community, and therefore, she should have a chance to be released on bail. Palm Beach County Judge Scott Suskauer disagreed with the defense's contentions. On April 29th, he filed a motion denying bond. The judge cited four main points for this determination the circumstances of the offense, the strength of the evidence, the defendant's access to finances that would make it possible for her to flee, and the theft charge in her past deemed by the judge as a crime of dishonesty. As of the date of this recording, Michael Warren has not been charged in connection to his late wife's murder. Although he has yet to be linked to the murder, back in 1994, he did serve four years in prison for grand theft, racketeering, and odometer tampering. Jury selection for Sheila Keene Warren's trial was initially set for September 8, 2021. A few weeks before trial, on July 26, Sheila's defense lawyers filed a new motion. This time, they requested the trial be postponed. According to an article in the Palm Beach Post, the court document asserted, because the case is so old, it's been hard to set up depositions with the prosecution's witnesses, get evidence of recorded tapes to be transferred to digital files, and have any expert witnesses view the evidence. 
at their insistence, it would be absolutely impossible the case will be ready for the original trial date. The judge agreed and postponed the trial, which is now set to begin on March 21, 2022. Only then will we find out whether DNA analysis of the decades-old case will be enough to convict Sheila Warren. Marlene's loved ones have waited a very long time to have some sense of closure in her case. Although the trial postponement will have them waiting even longer, they hope that it will all be worth it and that they will see Marlene's killer brought to justice. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to follow my new podcast, Judgy and Juryish. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you to Rhonda S., Angela F., and James H. for becoming Patreon subscribers. I really appreciate you guys. Also, find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. I'm very active there. You can also find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod or on Facebook by searching Murderish Podcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a raving five-star review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Stick around after the closing music to hear a list of sources used for this episode, as well as a podcast promo for Ghost Town Podcast. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include a San Diego Union-Tribune article dated September 30, 2017, by Tanya Alanez, a January 4, 2021 NBC5 WPTV article by Peter Burke, a May 26, 1992 South Florida Sun Sentinel article by Mike Folks, a May 1, 2021 South Florida Sun Sentinel article by Mark Freeman, a November 21, 2020 article in the South Florida Sun-Sentinel by Mark Freeman, a Time.com article dated June 19, 2019 by Randy James, a September 27, 2017 article in NBC News by Alex Johnson, a September 29, 2017 article in the Palm Beach Post by Barbara Marshall, a September 29, 2017 print article in the Daily Press Newport News, Virginia by Jorge Milian a March 22, 2014 article in the Palm Beach Post by Emily J. Minor, a May 24, 1991 print article in the Miami Herald by Lori Rosa, an ABC News October 19, 2017 article by Jenner Smith, Lauren Efron, and Ed Lopez, 
An article in the Palm Beach Post dated September 27, 2017, by Sean Somerville, a Washington County News, Abingdon, Virginia, May 12, 2021 article by Robert Sorrell, and Associated Press September 18, 2017 article by Terry Spencer, a print article dated June 7, 1990 in the South Florida Sun Sentinel by T.L. Stanley and Jim DePaola. A CBS 11 WJHL July 30, 2021 article by Slater Teague. An article in the Palm Beach Post dated September 27, 2017 by Hannah Winston. An article in the Palm Beach Post dated January 7, 2019 by Hannah Winston. An article in the Palm Beach Post dated July 29, 2021 by Hannah Winston. A 2021 article with no author at www.wellingtonfl.gov. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.